Hello and welcome to Stuff We've Seen. I'm uh, Jim and with me is Teal. Uh, This episode, well, I was going to say it's a very special episode, but every episode (laughs) is special. Every episode is very special because you're there. Yeah, and you are, and that's what makes it special. (laughs) Um, And and you, the audience, is is here too. And uh, you're excited to find out what we're going to talk about. And so, a little introduction few episodes ago, uh, we explored very, very, um, you know. We scratched, we just scratched the surface <laughs> of the, the surface. BFI sight and sound list. Yeah, the 250 list, which is actually 264 because of all the ties at the end. Right. Um, and I'm still making my way through the whole thing. But this is what's going to be great about this list is that as Teal tackles films here and there, and especially on maybe some of my recommendations or my challenges, as the case. Or your challenges. And and also, I think there's a couple of avoids in there, which I just am going to uh, take your word for. Yeah, right. Then, you know, and then if you ever delve into one of those avoids and say, oh, we need to talk about it, we will. <laughs> but in this episode, we're going to focus on a couple of the movies that happen to be on the 250 list. They're not in the top. No, I'm sorry. Uh, one of them is in the top 100 yeah. and the other is in the next 100. Um, it's also in the top 100 in the director's uh, yes. list. They did a separate list of 100. You know, isn't one of them like in the top 20 on the critics list? Mm, no. No. What number is it? Is uh, Selena Joy. Oh God, you're gonna you're gonna make me go and get that number out. No, no, no. Don't worry about it. We can we'll figure it out later. <laughs> you say that, but you know I'm going to <laughs> I'm going to look it up. Uh, I we... know it's high. It's a lot higher than I thought it was. So, well, I think uh, I... so. Anyhow, while you're looking for <laughs> I that, I have a suspicion a, why. A, a couple of weeks ago. You challenged me. You challenged me to watch two films. Yeah, and I didn't tell you why I was challenging you. You I didn't just... tell me why. I I have studiously avoided knowing too much about the films on the list. Uh, so going into these two films, I knew uh, country of origin, year, title, and maybe one sentence of uh, like blurb description. But I even tried to avoid reading those. And so I went in almost completely blind. I didn't know why I was being challenged, whether these were horrible films that I was going to suffer through and you were being cruel to me <laughs> or or if they were challenging because of the length or if they were challenging because uh, the content was emotionally difficult. I had no idea what the challenge was. And so I went into this uh, quite blind and naive about the whole thing. Ironically, you were right on all counts. It was a combination of all those factors. Um, and meanwhile, Celine and Julie go boating. Uh, Jacques Rivette, 1974, came in at 83 on the oh, list. Oh, okay. Okay. And I think that it, it's probably so high because I'm, I'm pretty convinced since there seemed to be a mandate that uh, critics pick at least one film that was directed by women. Right. That I think a lot of people forgot that it was actually directed by a man, and they, <laughs> and they, they put Celine and Julie go boating. Um, it's a very female centric movie. It is, yeah. So this this was uh, the first one on the challenge that I uh, that I took on, and uh, yeah. Did you have more to say about it before? Well, I, yeah, yeah, much like you. So both of these films, and maybe this is why the challenge. Well, there's a couple. Well, let's, of okay, so the two films are Celine and Julie. Go Boating and The Mother and the Whore. Yeah, which, by the way, uh, Celine and Julia Go Boating, I'd heard the name 
brandied about over the past yeah. several years. I had never even heard of the mother and the horror, which is why when it was up on the director's uh, list, and I was working on those both simultaneously before the whole 250 got right. put out. So the mother and the horror was one of the films that I was trying to finish in order to get the director's list complete. And then suddenly my whole plan got derailed by the whole 250. By the 250. Um, yeah. And then of course, mother and the horror did show up in the 250. But I, I literally am like, this title means nothing to me. I don't know it. I've never heard of it. So I was intrigued by the fact that there's a movie out there that, that I just, how could a movie that made the director's 100 be something I didn't even know? <laughs> didn't even know about. Yeah. And I assumed it was some sort of religious kind of thing based on the title. Yeah, and there might be something buried in there. Um, right, some, but I, I was look, I was think, expecting some sort of Catholic allegory. Yeah, I mean, it's also because if because if it's not for the allegory, it's a really I don't know what's the word uh, for the title. Um, ego. What, what, what would be the thing for? portentous portentous um very male like it is very male yeah and and it feels yeah yeah that's what it is it's, it's extremely male it's a little and, degrading and too it, it it's a little toxic masculine yeah and then and as i came to find out so is the movie a little bit um so is the movie yeah but and, uh but i guess it's all parts of what, what i've discovered right and a lot of it's like post because i'm watching selena julie go boating first and that's available on Criterion for people who want to check out on the channel. The Mother and the Whore, good luck. That's really hard. Um, you know, we, we we went really deep to try to find uh, a copy of it, and I didn't even see a very good copy of the movie. Yeah, and it really could do with a restoration, and maybe this list will give it a little attention. I don't know. There's supposedly a restoration out there, though. I don't know if it's available to, like, to purchase or rent, okay. but it is, you know, something maybe for film festivals. But several years ago, it was restored, and I have a feeling just because on the internet, I took a look at the trailer and it, the images looked way better okay. as it was. It really did look like, you know, the kind of print that a shitty, like a shitty 16 millimeter print was then run through like a telescene or something yep, to make that's, a VHS yep, That's copy. pretty much it. Yeah. And it looks like somebody's home movie. Like the Yeah. Shot. And if you can kind of get past that part of it, well, and I, I, you know, with both these films there, you know, with Celine and Julie, it's shot on 16 millimeter. There's a lot of handheld, there's hairs in the gate. Like it, it's kind of rough around the edges. It is not a slick Hollywood kind of production. And uh, you do have to do a little bit of work to let go of that. Yeah. I got to tell you the, um, the, the dogma people have nothing on these uh, French New Wave guys in the 70s, man. They, these guys where like Jacques Rivette was really setting up a camera and lighting was minimal, sound and yeah. everything. Uh, I mean, there's another Jacques Rivette that later that we'll probably get, end up talking about, which is out one. Yeah. Once you've seen it all. And there's a literally a scene where one of the actors is off screen. Uh, there's a telephone conversation. And you can hear, and she's the receiving end of the telephone, and she's talking, and it sounds like she's in the room, just re just reading her lines out. Oh, right, right, it right. It doesn't actually sound like you're hearing somebody come out of that phone, and it's just it's well, no, wait, there's of, a scene like that in Celine and Julie. Yeah, there's like this very minimalist thing going, which again, knowing nothing about the movie, that's already a surprise, right? 
Yes. Right. You're just surprised by the style. And so it takes a while for you to go, oh, wait a minute. Okay. I'm trying to put myself here in Paris, France, early 70s. What's going on? Um, All of these films are shaped by events that you and I and most of the people listening would have no reference for, which were the May uh, 68. Yeah. The protests and some riots amongst artists. And there was kind of a movement and it's very political in the art scene. And there's these groups of people that were coming out of it. And it was this idea that didn't go anywhere. And so now you had all these artists that got revved up by a movement that didn't happen. And the seventies and some of the movies are kind of a, um, a reflection on that. So right. A reckoning with that. And, and they, they reference it. Yeah, so the mother and the whore gets into that discussion. Celine and Julie go boating doesn't necessarily, but out one, it never mentions directly May 68, but it is all about May 68 and the aftermath in a sense. Okay, that's fascinating. I I can, having just watched uh, part one. So you've only watched one part of out one? Yes, all right. And I think this is another reason why. So the challenge for you, part of it was, again, these are not, these two movies were not my favorites. Yeah. But there's something weird about them that's going on that I recognize that when I watch Celine and Julie go boating, one, if whether your takeaway is, I love this, this is the greatest movie of all time, which some people clearly thought it was great. They, they posted it uh, enough to get on the top 100. But other people might be like, this movie was terrible. Even if you're in between, what you are going to walk away from is saying, I don't think I've ever seen a movie quite like this one. And, and I would say that about both these films, actually. And that's why I made the, the, the second one, because yeah. watching them together, and then, of course, me finding a weird fascination now with that period, and that's why I decided to take yeah. the full out one challenge next after that, is because... This is clearly, I'm seeing something going on within the artistic community, the filmmaking community in France at the time. And this is because they were going for this weird realism, not in their, because they're they're obviously scripted or improv, they're trying to get at something. They're having a really interesting conversation about stories about image about performance about uh the the blurry lines between reality and fantasy it's a it's a whole conversation that i think sort of uh, you know goes back to like brecht and uh antonin artaud and like you know these uh conversations about okay i'm sorry i'm going to use this phrase breaking down the proscenium arch (laughs) <laughs> I'm laughing because, like, you got to explain that one to me. <laughs> but I sort of get what you're going for, so I want to hear more. Okay, so the proscenium arch is the arch that is over a theater stage, right? Ah, okay. And so it's the it's basically the frame of the stage, right? And so the audience is on one side of the proscenium arch, and the play takes takes place on the other side of it. Right, so it's this dividing line between audience and play, or audience and fiction, and uh, so Brecht wanted to break down the proscenium arch and ha- do things like break the fourth wall. Right, that's breaking the proscenium arch. So any any time you're breaking down this barrier between audience and art, you are breaking the proscenium arch. 
Interesting, because that does fit in really well, especially, I'd say, with Celine and Julie go boating. Yes, absolutely. So, okay, so you challenged me on Celine and Julie go boating. I'm, I'm 20 minutes into this, and I'm thinking, damn you, James Kent. This is, this is, this is, this is just a nightmare. You're torturing me. And I went to write down a note and I was about to write, uh, this film sucks. But, (laughs) but halfway through my sentence, I wrote this film dot, dot, dot. There's something about it. And I realized that yes, as much as it sucked, I couldn't stop watching it. And then it got to this scene where there is a hair in the gate. (laughs) and it's an annoying scene anyhow it's during the switcheroo and she goes to visit the fiance uh right and there's that scene between the two of them like on the street and uh it's this man and this woman anyhow there's a hair in the gate and i was so irritated by it that i was just thinking i hate this movie and then i realized that so much of my uh problem with it was the hair at the gate and so I decided, okay, I got to just let this go. Like, I completely have to let go of that expectations of having a clean gate uh, and basic filmmaking, you know, practice, uh, which is to clean the camera. So I, I realized I just had to let go of a lot of that and a lot of my expectations and thoughts about pacing and try and making sense of it and all of that. And so about an hour in, I just submitted to the movie. And I got caught up in it and found it fascinating and funny. And, uh, but mostly I had an experience watching it that made me think this is an experiential film, right? It's not just, it's not a story you can just tell somebody. I mean, I could describe the film for you and you could make this into like almost like a 90 minute sci-fi thriller, right? But it's hard to describe the experience of watching it. And I believe so much of the meaning and the themes come across through that actual experience of the boredom and the frustration and the confusion and all those things I feel like are part of the meaning of this work. And so after I watched it, I started thinking about it a lot and I still didn't know why you challenged me. (laughs) But I realized my goal was to come on the show today and convince you that this movie is a masterpiece. <laughs> and because uh, <laughs> I think this is going to end up on my top 100 of all time. Fascinating. I think this movie is, it is it's in the subgenre. And I think it's maybe one of the best movies in that subgenre. It, it, and it, also, I do think it is probably one of the greatest films of all time wait which subgenre movies about storytelling well think about it right so now that you said a couple some key things here that i gotta break down um so the title celine and julie go boating yes and and mind you you're waiting a very long time yes three and a half hours before they actually go boating um but in france the term and this is if you were if they were saying it, you know, in the French in title, French, yes. "Aller en bateau." Okay, yes. 
to go boating, it means to get caught up in a story someone is telling you. And so in English, we know that as a shaggy dog story. Wait, there's another idiomatic sort of translation of that, which is to be taken for a ride. Right, and to be taken for a ride. And then also, you know, there's another sort of subgenre that makes a huge bunch of appearances in the top 250, which is the hangout film. Yes, yes. Um, One of Tarantino's favorite genres, and it's where the experience and hanging out with these characters is more important than the plot beats. Uh, Exactly. It's it's the experience of sitting there with this in real time and just – and, and the hangout thing it sort of goes back to what I was saying is you have to let go of your expectations of how time and pacing work. Well, that's the thing I've learned about these movies, seeing so so many of these films that are like, I mean, three hour plus. These are films that, especially when they were made at a time before Marvel decided to make three hour, like, you know, superhero epics. Yeah. Uh, the three hour movie and beyond was a rare thing in cinema. Yeah. And this is 315, I think. Somewhere around there. Somewhere around there, yeah. And it'll shock you because you're thinking, well, this is like epic scope or something. But then to have a three-hour and 15-minute movie, which is shot as a square, 16-millimeter, yeah. you know, not the greatest sound, uh, grainy, not, not much in the way of lighting, um, practical sets or locations – Hairs in the gate. Hairs in the gate. Which, by the way, for any of those people that are wondering, what are we talking about? So, you know, when we we, we went to film school, that was like lesson number one. I mean, you know, it was not just like theory for film. It was also technical, how to use a camera, et cetera. And one of the things they drilled into your head is that if you were in charge of the camera – you or and being the cinematographer, you would be fired on day two if the dailies came back and they saw a hair in the gate, a hair, any dirt in the any kind of unclean gate, because You'd that be fired would, instantly. Yeah, because that would show up. It, it, it light hits that hair. Yeah, and then it creates a negative, and then uh, in the positive, and it's permanently there. And, of course, if it's moving around and stuff, it'll be there. Which, of course, it is. Yeah. And you'll see some amazing, huge chunks of hair in some of these movies. (laughs) I mean, I don't do Hair, dust, grimy edges. I mean, it's just... Well, and and then you realize that uh, they're part of the reason they're keeping it is they only did one take on that, right? And it's seven minutes long, and it's just two people hanging out in a room, kind of improvising, hanging out. Yeah, now I want to talk about that. Uh, there's a few things I want to talk about. There's there's definitely the the type of film it is. If you want some clues to some films that you might have seen that 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 reminded yeah. me of it, you've got on the uh, Igmar Bergman side, you have Persona. Yeah, I think must have had some influence on Rivet. And then absolutely, yeah. you have to wonder if David Lynch was a fan of Rivette, because now that I've seen several things of Rivette's as part of this, Mulholland Drive and Inland yeah. Empire, and also um, Lost Highway, they also have stories that aren't necessarily as strong plots, uh, but they have this idea of people like, uh, you know... Uh, duplicates uh right doppelgangers uh people that are like too especially Mulholland Drive you have this well and and Celine and Julie with the hair color and Mulholland Drive with the hair color I mean again they, their personalities 
more so in this that they they merge, they split, they change. Yes, you seem to have the characters um, take part. I mean, I actually have a take on the movie. I mean, I don't even know if this is a movie where you're supposed to have a a plot take, but I do. Okay, before your take, I'm going to read you a quote by Rivette. I like my films to have at least two or three interpretations, not fixed, but shifting. Interesting. So he is intentionally making a film that doesn't have a single interpretation. Okay. So basically any analytical take on it is both correct and incorrect. And part of this is what the film is actually about too, which is what is your role as an audience member in interpreting a text? And Celine and Julie are looking at a text and interpreting it, and we're watching them interpret the text, and we're interpreting them and the text. And the film calls into the question into question the role of the audience in the creation of a text. And it puts us in that position and Celine and Julie in that position. And yeah, so anyhow, go ahead. Let me hear your take. I mean, it's interesting because, again, it, 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 this pairing would probably have been better without one. But I couldn't do a challenge to you where I say, here, watch this three-hour and 15-minute movie and then go watch the 13-hour <laughs> one. But I feel like the key to understanding where that comes in without one and then knowing out one uh, was done before Celine and Julie go boating, you might like think of the fact that he refined some techniques. But I actually think that maybe out one, when we talk about experiential viewing, that could be the masterpiece. Well, sure. 13 hours, you really, <laughs> you, you have no choice. And well, it has maybe about 90 minutes of plot spread throughout 13 hours and then other stuff. That's why I said it's experience. So my, so here's my take, right? If I was to give somebody a linear approach on this, based on what the movie gives me and the duality of these two actors um so dominique the, the, the Lab- fight club aspect well okay maybe the fight club aspect. so dominique laborier is julie and uh juliette berto as celine and juliette berto as i'm discovering is everywhere in the french new wave yeah very fascinating actor um she died uh, much too young um of cancer in like 1990 i think and she just has sort of like a she's like the manic pixie dream girl i would think she is um and she almost feels not real like because it's weird and i think that you said this just earlier here in in the episode about the way his actors perform because they don't seem to in one hand you might watch these actors and think these are not very good actors right because they're performing in a certain way and sometimes they almost feel like they're breaking as actors. Like it's almost like the part where they're trying to hold it without bursting out laughing sometimes. Well, and I think part of that is intentional because it's again, sort of that proscenium arch idea, right? Yeah. It's like, it, it's, are they acting? Are they improvising? Is it scripted? Are we, are we just watching? Is this like, do they even know the camera's on? Well, wait till you get to out one because most of the, of the, film are these two theater troops and i think you got a taste of it right in the first episode oh i would say more than a taste you're getting to watch actors when they're warming up and rehearsing for whatever they're going to do and these long exercises but over time and mind you some of it's boring i mean you can like in out one you could be checking your phone a few times i'm not i'm not gonna lie but you start to you start to understand you're starting to look at acting and it plays off because then after these rehearsals 
then they're going on breaks, right? And then suddenly they're a different, they're a different facet of the actor because they're discussing what they've just done. Exactly. And, yeah. But then you're like, but then these are actors. Well, first of all, a lot of it's improvised. He gave them scenes and, and yeah. did that. And that was more unique back then than like now, like the Larry David show, uh, Kirby Enthusiasm does a lot of this where they kind of sketch out what they're going to do. Oh, and then you have, okay. to have actors that can then go through the whole scene and, and improv. But, you know, you have these actors who had to kind of rely on the exercises and the training to do yeah. these kind of exercises. Well, and they're clearly, I mean, just on part one, uh, this there's about a 30-minute exercise. Yeah, that they really warm you up. If you can't handle the first episode of Out One, you're out. Yeah. Well, and but this, like, 30-minute exercise, acting exercise they do, uh, you know, I, I got about halfway through it, and I thought, these people are really good at what they're doing. Well, then it gets better though, because then afterwards you have to still see them. Like you have to question: Are these the, are these the real actors talking about themselves? Yes. Are they yes. the act? You know, and then uh, over time you're going to get to know almost all of these actors because they will get into their lives and other things, and so you really are in a weird meta experience. Well, and I think that's part of what's going on here is that it's a weird meta experience, but. Often with those, I'm thinking like uh, Synecdoche, New York. Yes. Right? Which I feel like is similar to Selena Joy. But I also feel like that film is a little cold and clever. Yeah. Right? And also it adds up. And I realize that a lot of these films that are sort of these meta films, if you sit down and analyze them, you actually can connect all the parts in a logical sequence. Whereas Celine and Julie is intentionally, some of the parts can't be connected. That may be true, but I'm going to go down now. Now I'm going to try. What you're doing is exactly my point, which is that the audience takes these pieces and creates a narrative. But it, but like it's built on weird things that happen in this movie. Yes. And so there's something that happens in the film. And again, you mentioned the, the point when uh, Juliette Berto, which, as Celine, she goes to meet Julie's fiance. Yeah, and they both do that. They switch life roles in order to sever ties with the outside world. Yeah, and it's also, you know, I mean, again, if, if you think of them, right? If you're thinking, oh, like the Fight Club analogy where they're just right. one person, these are different parts of one's personality. And Juliette Berto can handle certain things and yes dominique laborier is good at others because dominique's maybe more the the serious has a job even it's at the library and then julia berto is more of the can we just talk for a second about how great it is that it's a librarian and a magician i know these great yeah you know what it's even better is that this is the first time that i would watch one of these french new waves movies where the like where the uh, actor where the, the woman actor wasn't uh wasn't a prostitute <laughs> <laughs> We're like Rivette's being a visionary here in French New Wave, right? That's not the profession either one is is choosing. No, but no, 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 no. One of them's a stripper. Oh, wow. Okay, stripper. Um, That's the magician, right? Yeah. Yeah, that's the magician. And she's not really a stripper. She's a... Uh, uh, an erotic, exotic magician, maybe? Yeah. yeah. And, and by the way, I think that Juliet Berto's apartment-ish or the, or the apartment they hang out in there is the same one that they use for Juliet Berto's apartment in Out One. 
<laughs> okay. <laughs> but uh, so watch for that uh, for those who are going to take the uh, one challenge, which you can get on Canopy, by the way, which is that library affiliate uh, service. Yeah. So that was fascinating because that's when I started to see that duality and started to be reminded of Mulholland Drive. But there is this weird thing. And it was one of those where I felt like, did I just space out for a few minutes and not know what's happened? But then I realized, no, this was intentional, is that Julie stumbles out of this house and we haven't seen her go into the house, really. Like right. she was on her way to something, but she stumbles out and she's all confused as if she's like something bad's happened to her, but it's really unexplained. Mm-hmm. And and it takes a while before the story catches up and kind of explains that. Yeah. And then, of course, we get more involved in the second half of that uh, film where we spend a lot of time inside that mystery house. The house of fiction. The house of fiction. And we are constantly um, replaying a skit of, or will or like a soap a, a french soap opera kind of happening yes that's actually based on a henry james uh thing that's fascinating yeah well here's so here's the thing there's another scene where i think julie goes or maybe it's maybe it's celine goes to a house a neighbor next door or something and there seems to be some memory of her as a kid and i'm taking it as that this whole thing that's happening is happened to Julie or Celine when they were that little girl. And this is something that's- Oh, that's a good, yeah, that's a good take. And it's a challenge that they're trying to play out. And it's, and whatever happened with all those characters, which then Julie and Celine occupy various characters from scene to scene, and it's pretty wild. I'm thinking that it somehow created the two personalities. And that goes right into a lot of what Lynch does, right? There's a yeah. lot of things. And, and of course, when we think of Mulholland Drive and the famous add-on that turned the movie from a you know a TV pilot to right. this masterpiece, there's like you know, the blue box and then things go crazy. Well, they have that same thing where they have to take those like like mints or the whatever. Yeah, they, they just eat candy. It's so Yeah, funny. but they it's, treat it's it like, as like, uh, oh, if you eat it, it's like this magic potion. Yeah, they're, they're THC gummies. Yeah. Yeah, you know, if you eat the candy, you get to see the the drama, and <laughs> but then they run out of the candy, and this is great. They have to go to the library to find books to to, and so once once they're out of candy, they have to use books to create this potion that allows them to enter the fiction again. <laughs> And, but the, but this the idea that there's magic in the library and magic to be found in books like there's so many really cool little and metaphors and analogies throughout this and there's all these clues so anyhow okay keep going you're putting this together in a really cool way that I think uh, well I mean again you know it starts off and it's funny how you didn't like the first 15 minutes but the first 15 minutes has really hooked me where you know Julie's just on her break reading a book in yeah. on a, in a park and then she sees this kooky Juliet Berto as Celine and then what Celine kind of they eye each other and as you had said once they have a meet cute <laughs> they have a meet cute and it is this extended cat and mouse coy playful they're both kind of aware that they're of what's going on and they're playing into it kind of in this theatrical way but but also like two kids playing a game. Yeah, it's, and it's the, uh, really, I watched it again. Wait, wait, you've seen the movie twice? 
No, I watched the first 20 minutes again. Oh, oh, oh yeah. And then, of course, so she dropped, what, the scarf. And then yeah. the other one doesn't, like, Celine drops the scarf, but she doesn't want it back or something. And then, you know, you, you'll go into the library where Julie works, which, again, you know, think about it. Julie loves reading, a lot of imagination. Um, there's a lot of references to Alice's Adventures in Wonderland. The Henry James yes. that you're talking about is The Other House. Yes, the other house, exactly. Which yeah. actually was an influence on another identity film from the 80s, Desperately Seeking Susan. Oh, interesting. Okay. And that's funny because I'm like, I'm like actually even see a lot of Celine and Julie aspect into that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. But then, and you almost expect it, uh, Celine shows up at the library and she sits behind, but then there's like, you get to watch the movements and things and the actions she's making in sync with what uh, Julie's doing. Yeah. And it's all, there's certain elements of like the mystery or spy genre to this. Yes. One thing I love about uh, this film that was totally unexpected to me was the genre elements. I was expecting Celine and Julie go boating to be some neo-realist thing about two <laughs> Uh, neo realist look at two housewives it's more make it magic realist is really more what it is and it's magic realist it's it's almost sci-fi it's fantasy it's magic realist it's it's surrealist it's it's definitely not uh the realism i was expecting and dreading and, and here's the other thing the reason i like this film so much is i have to admit it's about one of my favorite topics which is storytelling and it brings up all these questions and interesting ideas about fiction and authorship and things like that. And at the same time, like you're completely blowing me away with the idea that they are the little girl and that this is almost a flashback. Well, I mean, I had lots of time to watch that scene because they show it so many yeah. times, but it was the, it was the visit to that neighbor who seemed to recall like, Oh, it's a yes. little girl. It made me think something happened in that house and I don't know whether it was, well, of course, based on, it's a, a weird play, but I feel like there was actual real tragedy in a childhood yeah. that's left this person to a magical way of thinking. That is really <laughs> cool. That is a great interpretation. And But see, you said something really fascinating about Rivette, and that's what's so great is he's giving a lot of space in this movie for whatever interpretation you have. I mean, you, you can't say I'm wrong because somebody else might be right too because he's not just creating one interpretation of the movie. You have to figure it out for yourself. You have to figure it out for yourself, and, that, and that's what Celine and Julie are doing. Right. They're, they're right. They're unraveling it. Yeah. They're forming an interpretation of this Henry James text, right? And and they're trying to put these, wait, okay. And so they watch pieces again to maybe get that clue again to, so they can put it together. And then there's the weird clues like you were just mentioning the house. She sees the photo of the house in her stuff. Yeah. But then the other one has all these dolls and, and things yes. from her. So like, again, <laughs> they're two parts of a whole. And then, of course, like other people could just like, this is a relationship movie where it's a non-sexual female relationship, although there's definitely 
an undertone of sexuality going I on. I would say, though, that this movie passes the Bechdel test. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yes. It blows it out of the water. Yeah. Um, now, of course, though, the only thing is it's still directed by a man. However, right. he, I mean, again, I don't know what the collaboration was, but both Dominique Laborier and Juliette Berto are listed as co-screenwriters. Okay. Well, I have another Rivette quote. Okay. Rivette was anti-auteur. Ah, he actually thought the that cinema should be autorless, and what he wanted to eliminate the whole concept of that. So here's the quote: In films, what is important is the point where the film no longer has an auteur, where it has no more actors, no more story, even no more subject, nothing left but the film itself speaking and saying something that can't be translated. The point where it becomes the discourse of someone or something else, which cannot be said precisely because it is beyond expression. Hmm. And so he's talking about, to me, when I, when I read this, I thought he's talking about what we're talking about, which is the experiential nature of watching these films and that it's, it's beyond discourse, right? You almost can't talk about it. It's beyond expression. It can't be said. It just has to be experienced because it's that sensation of hanging out, that sensation of trying to put the narrative together, trying to make sense of it, the sensation of watching somebody else. You know, there's a point at which I was like, these guys are just getting high and watching TV, and we're that's what we're watching, right? <laughs> that's why now you're like, why did I challenge you? I never told you whether I really liked it or not. I mean, I might have said, like, I'm not sure. No, you, you didn't. I had no idea whether you liked but it But it was a movie where unlike some things, I mean, I'm always trying, you don't like to be spoiled, like yeah. have spoilers. So if I see something that's great, I have to try to convince you to, <laughs> to watch it. To see it without spoiling. And there's yeah. some amazing films that I really want you to see, like Brighter Summer Day, um, because I know, now that I know like what kind of reaction you're having to this, but the reason why I had to challenge you was because yeah. I'm like, I don't want to say I needed a little help, but like, I just, I like, I wanted another person to weigh in on this thing and, and give me some <laughs> thoughts because again, it was so unusual that yeah. I, I like, it was kind of one of those things where like, I don't know if I really loved it. Maybe it's a little bit too long. However, there could be something really brilliant going on here. <laughs> oh, I, I, I think it's a masterpiece. And I think that, you know, you have to, you have to let go of a lot to go into a movie like this. And so it's 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 a hard movie to recommend, right? Because yeah, a lot of people- Yeah, you're doing a good job, though. I think, you're, yeah. I think you've added a lot of intrigue. But man, I got to tell you, if you like this, wait till you get- I mean, you know, I know it's going to take you years before you get to these. But man, you're going to watch that Satan Tango movie and you are going to flip the F out. Oh, I'm so excited about that. Because that's your that one you're going to blow you away now that I now that I know what's going to get you excited. But uh, okay, so on the flip side, right? Wait, I, wait, hold on one second. All right. La one last thing on uh, Selena. Yeah, and we Julie. do have a second movie to talk about. Yeah. So Selena and Julie has a few subgenres. <laughs> one is uh, is movies about artists and creators. Okay. Now, generally. Those movies focus, like Synecdoche, New York, or uh, I don't know, the Jackson Pollock movie or whatever, right? Movies about artists tend to focus on the individual artist and their struggles. Right. Selena Julie is about the audience and the artist 
and where the line is between them. And it's a collaborative process between audience and artist. So it's much less individualistic and is actually presenting the audience with this autorless idea in practice and in experience of watching the film. Is this the kind of movie that now that you've seen it and it's like, you know, what's exciting about these things? And this is why I'm taking this challenge because like them or hate them and all these movies, I realized that each film that I get to, like a Celine and Julie Go Boating, it changes my perception of film or what film can be. And so the more I watch of these, I get a, a broader sense of movies. And so now that you've seen it, is this the kind of film, since you've talked about how it's about storytelling, is this yeah. something that you would want to try to, to uh, teach your, your writing students? Absolutely. And I don't think that I will assign it necessarily. It's definitely a film I will use as an example of different approaches to narrative. And then people might get excited by it because they're like, oh, what's this? Wait a minute. <laughs> and if I have a student who's doing something where they're playing with causality a little bit, because that's that's what Rivette does a lot of is, is causality. And, you know, I, this is I would recommend this to the right type of student. But I would also I mean, I, I, as I was thinking about it yesterday before the show, I was thinking I'm going to tell my students about this this week because there's a lot of material here for writers to think about and explore and 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 you know that's the other thing it's like the movie's thought provoking i like movies that make me think but there's also you know the characters are fun it's it's funny it's it's it, like there's some it has entertainment value i guess you know not if you like transformers movies they're but. very appealing that's another thing yes. too is the two actors are very appealing <laughs> the movie is charming it has charm so anyhow, I totally fell for it. I will recommend it to people. I will watch it again. I'm looking forward to watching it again. And okay, so the other subgenre, which I've recently become obsessed with, but I haven't uh, really talked to you about it yet, is uh, apophenia. Wait, wait, say this again. Apophenia. Apophenia. Yeah, A-P-O-P-H-E-N-I-A. It's the human tendency to see connections and patterns that are not really there. Like I just did with the, the plot. <laughs> That's my point. This is why this fits. And so, there, you know, there, there's a lot of movies that do this where there's, you know, a character sort of putting together a conspiracy or something. Under I mean, the Silver Lake. Under the Silver Lake is definitely an apophenia movie. Yeah. So anyhow, weird little subgenre. <laughs> Last note on Selena and Julie. But I could go on and on about this movie because there's so much to say and so much to explore and it can be endlessly analyzed and thought about. And the two women are charming. So, well, I think that uh, upcoming you listeners out there, uh, there'll be an eight-part series coming up on Out One, <laughs> uh, the thirteen-hour masterwork from Jacques Rivette that uh, doesn't necessarily add up to what you think it's going to add up to, but it's an experience that, uh, honestly, I don't know if I've ever had an experience quite like it, and you do get really caught up in it. I, I am looking forward to, I, you know, I think. Like I said earlier, in some of this stuff, the meaning is the experience. A lot of things you just said about this movie will apply when you see out one, but I 
my gut tells me that if your feelings were this strong on this film, mm-hmm. you're gonna be you're gonna be absolutely blown away by out one. And the best part is you don't even know. Like I know things that you don't even know about in this movie coming up. Oh, so. I, I I know. I'm I'm really just, but I'm hooked after the first part. Yeah, and you haven't even gotten. I mean, one of the big French uh, new wave actors, which you've probably seen in other stuff, just didn't realize, is this actor uh, Boulogere. And she was in some uh, Godard films. And, okay. And uh, she was in um, Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie. But she is in Out One. And she's also in Duel, which I watched, which okay. is another Jacques Rivette, yeah. which um, that one, unfortunately, some of his experiments don't always work. But I think a lot of that Brechtian stuff is definitely in there. And okay. the, the log line on that is, the queen of the moon is versus the queen of the sun dueling it out to see who gets to stay in Paris. If they can get their hands on the magic gem. Well, okay. That sounds, that sounds pretty awesome. <laughs> it does. It just doesn't execute as awesome as it sounds. Okay. But. Cause I got to say that, you know, I signed me up for that. <laughs> well, it was only two hours. So it was a lot faster <laughs> than the others. But. Yeah. That's, I, that's, that'll be over too fast. I mean, that's the other thing. Some of these movies I'm like, Oh, uh, with the length of time, it, just forces a whole different experience. Well, that's the fascinating thing about these movies. I can't explain why 13 hours of Out One felt faster than an hour and 15 minutes of Daisies. Right. (laughs) But it did. I mean, the first hour and a half, you saw it. It goes by like nothing. I don't know. It's just like, oh, wow, that part's over now. Yeah. Um, Okay. So then the other challenge I gave you was the mother and the whore. The mother and the whore. And this is a challenge. Is that this is another one where this is three and a half freaking hours. And again, I had no idea what I was getting into. I, that was another reason why did I challenge you is because I didn't know anything about the plots of either one of these movies. I went into them as cold as you. So I felt like, good, we'll put you in in cold. And I know that you had never heard of the mother and the whore either. I'd never heard of it. Yeah. And this was a year before Celine and Julie go boating. Director is Jean Estouche. And he died tragically in the early 80s. He had a, uh, an accident, I think, with a car crash. He was paralyzed oh. partially. And he was so depressed uh, about his life that he killed himself. Oh. So he didn't really uh, come to promise. This is considered his masterwork. It's based on his life. Uh, as you know, the thing is, another thing I thought was fascinating about watching these movies, I understand the point of view, um, especially in the mother whore, it's very male centric. Yes. Extremely. And it is that kind of like very toxic masculine thing. And you know what? In France, it was more of a, of a, like this male macho culture and, this you definitely <laughs> wait more so than america yeah different different but there was this attitude what it is is it's the macho bohemian the macho bohemian that's perfect yes and you get this two three and a half hour epic where we get to watch this macho bohemian guy played by jean Liot, every the new wave's favorite actor oh he's brilliant i got it i love this guy and here he is he's playing this guy, Alexander, he's got no job. He's mooching off his living girlfriend, <laughs> my, Marie. One of my favorite lines in the movie is, I only date girls with apartments because I don't have one. Yep. He doesn't have any <laughs> means, but yet he always has money to go to these cafes. It's about the cafe lifestyle in yeah. Paris. 
it's fascinating. This, I mean, there's like, I think it, the record must be 1 million cigarettes smoked in this film. Oh my, I mean, the, <laughs> it's so, it's like, it's a, it's like, but you get dropped into this place in time and where yeah. at first this guy is like possibly the biggest asshole that you've ever watched on screen. And I know you hated him at first, just like I did, but something along this journey, once you have to say, okay, I'm going to be in for three and a half hours with this asshole. Yeah. He never gets less assholey. However, I feel like what we see is get, being this kind of asshole doesn't get you anywhere in the end. <laughs> Not only that, he's a really interesting kind of asshole. He is. Right? I mean, that's the thing is he reminds me of people that we went to school with back in the day in NYU. <laughs> the first, I don't know, 15 to 30 minutes, somewhere in there, I think I messaged you and said, I don't know if I can do this, right? And part of the reason was because of the toxic masculinity. I was like, is this just going to be a celebration of this asshole for three hours? Like, I don't know if I can handle that because I had expectations for the kind of story uh, an American film would be about that kind of character. Like everything we learned in America about how you're supposed to put movies together, I feel like this defies all that. It defies the basic logic of a love story, right? Which is, or the basic logic of the guy of the misogynist who um, learns to, who by the end of the movie has a heart of gold, right? Or, or is punished by women by the end, of, or something like that, right? There's some sort of arc to this guy having some kind of epiphany and realizing that he's been an asshole that's that's what i was expecting and i was like so i have to sit through this whole movie of this guy being an asshole and then but that's not what the movie is at all no and i think i had a, i kind of said you got to keep waiting because there's going to be an actor that shows up and it's going to kind of change the story a bit and she does yeah veronica which is uh, yes. played by francoise lebron uh still acting today and she is, I guess, labeled the whore in the story. <laughs> um, yeah, she labels herself that at the end. Yeah, which again, I think only a French male French person would write dialogue like that. Yeah. Oh, that's I, that monologue. I have very mixed feelings about. But but that's another thing too. Is I'm looking at this movie in the lens and going, a man wrote this, and it yeah. has a lot of his attitudes, and even maybe worse, when the women are talking, it really feels like a man wrote this. Yeah. And well, when the women are talking, but which is, <laughs> you, know, you never get a word in with this guy. <laughs> he talk, he he comes in like they have a date, right? They're going to meet at the cafe. He comes in, sits down, looks at her, doesn't say hello and just talks for five minutes. Just mansplains, you know, whatever it is. And she just sits there and smiles at him. Actually, if you look mansplain up in the dictionary, there's a picture of Alexander. <laughs> but here's the amazing thing. This movie is wall to wall dialogue. I mean, it yes. is. It is the, like, it is all talking. Yes. The scenes are just scenes with people talking. There's not, like, great mise-en-scene or any of that stuff. It's just, you know. No, I mean, I do like the apartment. Like, the the mise-en-scene in the apartment is really well, or the the decorating in the apartment is really well. Well, it feels like real, like, you feel, like, again, I feel like what you had said earlier, like, with with, uh, Slee and Julie go boating, you do feel like you're an audience peeking in. And this stage that they're on, like we get to see yeah. their lives. But here's the thing: the whole movie feels like it's one big long improv. Yes, and that achieves like where Celine and Julie go boating was one big long improv, pretty right. much. Every single word that is spoken in this movie was written and memorized. Knowing that 
definitely impacted me um, once I found that out as I was still going on the journey of watching this movie because just the fact that this guy, Jean-Pierre Lyot, had to memorize all this dialogue (laughs) is pretty amazing. Yeah, so she comes in and she is such an interesting character. And I think that's kind of what saved the movie for me is that I've never seen a character like her. Throughout the movie, I'm thinking one thing. I'm thinking, man, this person never smiles. Yeah. And then there's a point in the movie where they <laughs> you never smile, like, and she yeah. smiles. And it's like, oh, wait, she can smile. <laughs> it's so funny because she has this really interesting deadpan expression. Yes, and, and seems kind of grim. And she just adds this whole layer to the character through that deadpan expression. And, you know, her weird little apartment where she makes Nescafe for it. Like, <laughs> Would you like some Nescafe? Right, but she, you know, she doesn't want him to see where she lives. Oh, because she lives in like that kind of weird, like sort of almost like an old building loft kind of thing. Yeah, like a boarding house. Yeah. And then she wants to just go look at the water. Like, it was just a, v- a very unique romance, I guess. Like, I just hadn't seen those two characters before. And it's just so different than most other romance movies that if I was, I, I didn't love this movie, but I respect it. Oh, I didn't love it either. I, I still wondering though, who are those like this is why I wish I could see the whole list of critics and what their choices. I wanna know who these people were. I feel like the only people that put this on their best list are are like males, French males. <laughs> French males, which there's probably quite a few of it. But it, but I can't I mean I, I would not I mean, I like this. Let me put it this way. I'm glad I saw this movie. It's something I'll maybe refer to in the future, but I'm not... uh, I'm not going to watch it again anytime soon. I would watch it again someday if I could see a restored copy because that was part of the... At some point, I've just decided that this is the only copy I have. I want to complete my lists and I'll watch it and... It became part of the experience that this is sort of this down and dirty movie where, you know, if you put yourself in 1973 and say you were in America and you were in an art theater, there's some frank dialogue and talk about sexuality and then a woman talking about her body and sex in ways that you probably still today don't get in American film. I mean, she's talking about sex with a tampon and stuff like that. Well, yeah, just very, well, there's another interesting part about his character. I About halfway through, I realized he's not deceptive. Yeah, he says everything that he's thinking. He doesn't lie to either woman. Nope. Again, if it was an American character, he would have been a bullshitter. Instead, he's just an asshole. Yeah, now the um, other person we didn't mention, his his live-in girlfriend, yes. Marie, she's like a shopkeeper. Uh, her name is uh, Bernadette LaFont, and she's the mother. I call him the asshole. <laughs> like, yes. there's the mo- They should have said the mother, uh, the asshole, and the whore or something. Uh, then it would be more appropriate. But she has a role in Out 1. You haven't gotten to her yet. Okay, she yeah, comes in to. several uh, installments later, but it's just Jean-Pierre Liode it has a is a fascinating character in Out One, um, and you've gotten a very very limited glimpse of him in the first yes. episode. Yeah, you'll start. He will start to be integrated into the story more and more as the parts. But his character and Juliet Berto's, they're the people that they keep cutting back to throughout this movie. That they become the most interesting parts. I love the way 
Rivet. Just I'm only part one into this, but I like the way he works with narrative in terms of you know it cuts to that character to the deaf mute character without connecting it to the actors, and so he's leaving a lot of space for us to start to draw connections between things, and it's that same kind of apophenia watching experience. Yeah. Now, <laughs> well, you know what? I'm trying again. It, it's hard. We can't really talk about out one because you haven't seen. We it. will soon though because I'm I'm binging it. And now I kind of want you to now I'm because like I think it's a fun conversation I want to have with you because there's just I mean when you get a 13 hour experience yeah. there's so much to chew on and unlike another movie that's on the 250 which. I feel like it's a little bit of a cheat because I don't consider it a movie is uh, David Lynch's uh, Twin Peaks, The Return. Right. If I was just, if, if that's included and that's allowed, I'm putting it on my top 10 because I think it's one of the top 10 greatest things I've ever watched, movie, right. TV. I just don't think of it as a movie. I think of it as a limited TV series. And Out One started its life as a French series. And okay. it was supposed to be, you know, an a 13 hour so maybe it was going to be like an hour installments right and he got maybe enough money to put it together and then the french tv station was like what we're not no we don't want this and he rejected it and so he did he had this thing and he didn't know what to do with it and so it had a notorious like one-time festival screening in france in the early 70s and claire denis was there and she describes it as like a 13 hour, like being on acid for 13 hours or being completely <laughs> stoned watching something for 13 hours. And it was something that she'll never forget. And that's how people watched it. And it was never even seen in America until festivals started picking it up. And they had one 16 millimeter print and they had to project subtitles onto the film for people to watch it that's how you got to see this movie that was the only way until recent years where it got a restoration it became available on like dvd and and then again like i said you can get it on canopy which is how i saw it and so you know it's one of those really rare like hard to find movies and that's why I wonder with some of these movies, why in film school did I never hear about this stuff? Well, that's the reason why. They were not available. They just didn't exist, basically. They didn't. And so I'm always tickled when I get to experience stuff where Celine and Julie go boating. I'd heard of the name. I didn't know anything about it. But Mother and the Whore, I never heard of this movie. Uh, Satan Tango, I'd never heard of this movie. I had. Out One, never heard of it. I one never heard of it, yeah. I'd heard of the Turin Horse. I had never heard of uh, Satan Tango. Turn horse I had heard about, yes. Thankfully, I don't have to sit through that because that, that got cut off. It was in the 2012-250, but it oh. did not make it. So I kind of <laughs> escaped. But there's another, there is another Bellatar movie somewhere in the 250 that I got to watch. And how long is that? I think it's a little over two hours. We're good. Okay, oh, that's done. That's <laughs> that's, no it'll be deal, like a but, snap. But there is something to be said for long movies that are not tightly plotted epics. Yeah, I mean, again, the mother and whore, I think that, like, again, watching these things at home is great. Out one, I can kind of watch it, and I did, the way that the the French series was intended, where I watched it kind of an episode at a time. Sometimes I had to pause for other things, but most of the time, 
because they were short enough, I watched them in installments, one part. And then, of course, I started getting caught up in it. And once you get caught up in it, you're like, oh, I can't wait to watch the next part. Right. Yeah, that's how I feel right now without one. I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, and you did, you haven't even got – I feel like it really starts kicking in on episode three, which already sounds okay, like well, – Well, but here's the amazing thing is, so two of those episodes is like three hours. And in this yeah. movie, right, three hours is just getting you into the movie. That's That's – very fascinating to me. It's very fascinating. Yeah. And it, it, just the audience experience and to know, you know, those those little quotes I had, just to know that Rivette is doing this with such precision and intent, even though he's improvising a scene, there's a precision in that. And he has a lot of control over what's happening in the film, even though it looks kind of chaotic and amateurish at times. Well, I think the history, though, too, it's early 70s. Think about this. At the time, we didn't have a lot of improv going on in movies. Right. And we never had, we didn't even have like Saturday Night Live, but like television would be your purest sense of a variety show or something where there might be improv going on, but you didn't have improv in movies. You'd have improv in theater, but not... Yes, but that's what I'm saying. So he was he was one of the early experimenters in this. When we were in film school, people would make films with this kind of aesthetic. Yes. But the aesthetic was empty and because they were merely imitating it, whereas... What Rivette is doing actually holds a huge amount of meaning. It's not just a style. Well, I would also say though that some of the things that I watched, especially like if you got if you watched if you went to the end of the year NYU Film Festival where they had like more of the graduate students in the linear films, it, the thing was is you had because I mean again people only have so much money and stuff, so you so the look right. and feel ended up looking and feeling a lot like like the mother and the whore. Um, the mm -hmm. problem is is that. We were encouraged to not make movies like this. I feel Absolutely. like we were told, yeah. you do not do this. And maybe that's a hint as to why there seems to be a movement on this greatest films of all time list to veer away from your, your typical great Hollywood movie. Right. Because they don't want these people who fancy themselves critics and stuff, they don't want to bolster up a film that follows all the rules you're supposed to follow. You know, and the other thing is, you would mention this earlier, and I, I think this is absolutely right, is that not having gotten into the list as far as you have, it seems to me that most of the films on the list are unique. They are singular films. If that's part of the criteria, I find that interesting, right? You know, both of these films I haven't seen before. I, I don't have a lot to compare them to. And as a result, they're interesting and will have a place in my sort of understanding of world cinema. They'll, they'll, they're stuck there a little bit now. Yeah, I mean, that's another thing, too. Again, I, I think, you know, world cinema is important. And whether or not I agree with all these films on the list... That to me is is not why I'm do, doing this mission. It's not so I can see them all and go, right. ha ha, I was right. These don't belong. Though I could certainly list out the 30 or 40 movies that have no place. <laughs> right, right. But right. I'm getting much richer experience in world cinema. Yeah. Again, I had seen one Jacques Rivette movie. And it was a four-hour one, uh, La Belle Noiseuse. And I saw that when I was at NYU in the yeah. theater with a bunch of people. And we took the challenge because there was some French movie that was four hours long. And we thought that would be kind of interesting. Yeah. And that's a great movie. But one movie doesn't give you enough sense of what the director is and does. So now, 
I have, through this experience, I've seen three of his films. Now, Duel yeah. is not on the, the greatest list, but, I, but I'm but i intrigued enough because yeah. of seeing these movies that I want to see more from certain directors. And so I was not really aware of Rivette, and, and I realized why is because he is not... I found a little YouTube video on Selena Julia. I didn't watch it. I watched the first minute, right? The guy introducing it says that Rivette was not even in the art house, basically, right? Like there was mainstream art house like Godard and Truffaut. They were considered mainstream. And Rivette wasn't even in the mainstream of the art house. Yeah, his most well-known movie is Selena and Julie Go Boating. Yeah. So, yeah, anyhow, I find that very interesting. He is definitely off the beaten path. And because of that is part of what makes it fun to watch those and dig them up. Yeah, so this little um, segue into the, the French New Wave, this is for you listeners to hopefully get intrigued by something you haven't seen before and maybe go see it. Like I said, The Mother and the Whore, you know, look, I, 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 you and I were able to get it, but that's, you know, we're, we, we have, yeah. we're, we're very clever. But you're going to have a hard time out there finding this movie. But Celine and Julie Go Boating, you can absolutely watch it on the Criterion channel. Yep. And it's on Blu-ray, I think. And Yeah, and I don't know if there's any other Rivets on... Um, I don't know. I haven't really dug in yet. I'm doing Out One now. I don't want spoilers, so I'm not reading too much. I'm not telling you about Out One, but... Uh, no, 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 no. I was just saying I'm not reading much about Rivet because I'm still... Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. The good news is, is there's going to be probably more of these episodes throughout the year when Teal stumbles across something that I've recommended and then it's like, holy crap, I can't believe how amazing it was because you'll have yes. the experience that I had. And believe me, uh, with films like The Ascent and uh, Brighter Summer Day, uh, th- these are some things that Teal has not seen that when he sees them, I know he's going to be like, we have to talk about this. Holy shit. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, and of course you only have so much time and, uh, and I'm not saying that I have more time than you, but I just, I choose my time more insanely than you do. <laughs> You do, and you also have a slightly different watching method. I would love it. I'd love to tell you that I sat down one day and said, oh, I'm going to watch Lee and Julie go boating, and that's it. But that's not how I'm accomplishing this list. I'm, yeah. I'm watching several movies at the same time. I watch a thing and, and watch the first like few minutes, and if I'm hooked right away, I might watch the whole movie. Or... I might have to pause and go to something else. And then it might feel like a week goes by where I haven't really finished anything. And then the next week I've ended up finishing five movies. Right. Because I'm a one movie at a time kind of person. Right. And you can see if I did that, I probably wouldn't be anywhere near as far. I had to do it if I'm going this. And I don't recommend it necessarily because I don't know if I got the best experience out of some things, but... I would not be able to keep track of it in my head. I keep things on a list. And also with Criterion, I always see what's in my queue. So Right. Yeah. No, I, I know you have an organizational system. I, I just, uh, yeah. I know. They all start to blur together. and Exactly. Yeah. And But I do plan on doing Satan Tango in one sitting. But I tell you, there is some, like, I think it's like broken up into three or four parts. Oh, okay. Where it's like, it gives you a pause. So you could literally get to that. But you know what? It it would be more rewarding if you could watch it in a theater or something all on thing. Um, And the only other thing too is my strategy is, I'm like you. If I watch too many of the same types of films, 
they would all blur together. So yeah. I try to do different things and like have like an English language one going where uh, like something that's maybe more documentary and then another right. one that's like maybe uh, Japanese and then French just so that it doesn't blur together. Right. Because if I was watching a bunch of black and white French new wave films. Yeah, that that's that's a nightmare. That would all just become one giant mush of movies to me. Like, for for instance, here's what I'm watching now. I, I, I'm watching, as one of them, I'm watching the five and a half hour silent film. Napoleon? Napoleon. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Look, I would love to say that I'm going to watch that in one sitting. Uh, not. It's hard. I will definitely not watch that in one sitting. But as I'm chipping away at that, and sometimes I might get caught up for 15, 20 minutes. Others, it's like five minutes here and there. I don't know how long it's going to take me to finish it. Once I finish that, then I will go and add another long one to my list. But I can't right. have I can't have all long ones. So I've got like a three-hour one going. I've got this five-and-a-half-hour one going. And then I got some smaller ones. When I finish Napoleon, I have the option of going Greed, which is four hours. Though yeah. Some of it's just title cards in between, and I may have to do some fast-forwarding. And then, because it's like piecing together a movie that doesn't exist. Is it on YouTube? Could you watch it at like 1.5 speed? Oh, I don't like to do that. I mean, that's one thing <laughs> I haven't done, though. I, I All these movies, I don't cheat. I have watched... Every, I might not have had my eye on it the whole time. I might yeah. have looked down at my phone a couple of times, but I have not fast forwarded any of these movies. I watched yeah. them entirely, but like there's that West of the Tracks. It's like a nine hour documentary yes. about China. I can't put that into my queue and start watching that until I've gotten rid of, I'm not going to have a five and a half hour movie right, and a nine right. hour movie. And an, Yeah. Yeah. Cause I actually think that that. Because it's a documentary, timing is different. I might get through that one pretty fast. Yeah, it's a whole different kind of pacing. Yeah, so we'll have to see. But I mean, man, I'm telling you, every time I think I'm done with these silence, a new silent one is around the corner. <laughs> I got like two more after this I got to watch. And you, if there's two things I know you don't like, it's silent films and anime. And I got one anime left, but I want to watch that one. Silent anime is probably, what, which one do you have left? Grave of Fireflies? Grave of Fireflies, yeah. I yeah, watch that's that. great. Oh, you've seen it? Yeah. Okay, so I do want to see that. Um, again, I have 50 left, uh, and I'm yeah. in progress with about four or five of them. So Anyhow, we should wrap up. Yeah, um, we're going to wrap up. Um, so, uh, we'll see, we, we kind of just went boating there. <laughs> well, we did go boating. <laughs> and, but I think, you know, going boating is a great thing for a film to uh, bring the audience on, I think. I, I, I like that. And to do it successfully, you know, a shaggy dog story can totally fall apart. But I feel like the ending of Celine and Julie Go Boating was actually pretty solid. I mean, in some respects, it starts, it ends where it starts. It starts yeah. where it ends. I mean, it actually, yeah. I feel like he was able to successfully go uh, 360 on that movie where out one, well... I think he ran out of gas a little bit, but okay. But we'll find out. Anyways, <laughs> yeah. everybody, just go see some stuff or watch some stuff at home. Whatever you got to do, enjoy. Until the next time. Bye-bye. Bye.